Welcome to the North Star Unplugged Podcast, brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged Podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions, and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter, which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com. Hello, and welcome back to North Star Unplugged. This is Kristen Rainey, and today I'm excited to be with J.L. Collins, who is widely regarded as the godfather of the financial independence movement. His very popular stock series blog can be found at jlcollinsnh.com. And that blog and his book, The Simple Path to Wealth, have been credited by many as transformative in helping them think or rethink investing, allowing many to reach financial independence or FI, providing the freedom to do whatever they want with their time at a much earlier age than they might have otherwise. JL, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Kristen. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for the invitation and the wonderful introduction. I'd love to start with a big rewind to 13 years old when you had your first real job at an ice cream parlor where you were scrubbing out the big metal ice cream containers for $1.25 an hour. (laughs) What do you remember about that gig? Oh, so first of all, that that was my first real job in the sense of getting a paycheck. And you're not including selling Feist Waters door to door and picking up pop bottles on the side of the road. What I remember about that gig was being thrilled to have gotten it. That was the fun part. And being up in the front of the store dishing out ice cream cones was fun. But most of the time, the guy who owned it had me in the back of the store scrubbing out these big metal tanks. He made his own ice cream on on the premises. And of course, those big metal cylinder tanks that he made it in had to be scrubbed out for the next batch. And that was unpleasant work, but still, it was great to have the job. Every single hour I got $1.25. I was thrilled. Was free ice cream part of the perks? It was not. Ah. (laughs) It was, was, you would think, but no, it was not. He was not a generous employer in in that way. Do you remember what you spent your earnings on or what you did with your earnings? Probably ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think I saved a lot of it. I was always a, a good saver. My mother painted the prospect of a red convertible when I turned 16 with the money I earned. And of course, that never happened. I wound up spending most of it to pay my way through college, through that job and a series of others. But the convertible was a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, so to speak. And that had to come later in life. I didn't get that until I was an adult. You just mentioned earlier that even before the ice cream job, you were selling fly swatters door to door and picking up empty soda bottles from the road that you could redeem. It sounds like you were quite the entrepreneur. This was 
age eight, right? What drove you to those activities at such an early age? I think actually earlier, my recollections, I started at five or six doing those kinds of things. And I'm not quite sure what the motivation was. I liked earning money. Those days, the pop bottles were worth two cents a piece and collecting them and taking them over to the grocery store and having them actually hand me money for them. That was thrilling. And my dad was a manufacturer's rep. He had various lines of housewares that he represented. He had samples of those. And had a Fleischwater line for a while. So when those samples were old and replaced with new samples, he gave them to me. These days, you can't imagine a parent sending their five or six-year-old out to knock on strangers' doors. But in those days, you did. And I remember I was selling them for five cents a piece. And what I also remember is most people said no. And looking back on it, that's amazing. And I was a moderately cute five-year-old. It's a nickel. (laughs) How do you say no to that? But most people did. But that was a good life lesson that no is just the beginning, right? I remember going door to door selling Girl Scout cookies and I hated it. But there was the incentive of some random stuffed animal was the prize if you sold a certain number of boxes. So that was motivation for some reason for me at age six or seven. I'd have rather had the nickel. So JL, what inspired you to start investing? I mentioned my father was a manufacturer's rep. He was self-employed. He was very successful. He was in business with my uncle, but he was a cigarette smoker. And cigarette smoking, the insidious thing about it is that it kills you slowly and it debilitates you along the way. So as the emphysema developed, his health faded and with it, faded his ability to work. And it was a slow process, but we went from being very comfortably middle to even upper middle class to really having nothing. And my father was not a saver or investor. And so as his income went away, our lifestyle went away with it. And that was a profound lesson. I'm not quite sure what motivated me to pick up pop bottles because that was long before this happened. But that's certainly what motivated me to realize that I never wanted to depend exclusively on what I could earn through my own labor. And so I immediately started investing. This is long before, by the way, I never heard the term financial independence or even had the concept of being financially independent or having enough money not to have to work. I just knew that every extra dollar I invested made me that much fiscally stronger and safer and uh, was security. And uh, so that's what motivated me initially. What was your very first investment? I had saved the princely sum of $5,000 in a savings account. I knew I wanted to invest in stocks. I didn't really know anything about stocks. I certainly didn't know anything about index funds. So I was working in downtown Chicago at the time. I walked down Michigan Avenue a block or so from the office where I worked. And I walked into the storefront and told the receptionist I wanted to talk to somebody about investing in stocks. And she introduced me to one of their brokers. And I sat down with him and I said, hey, I've got this $5,000. I worked hard for it. I want to invest in something that's bringing me the classic thing beginners say, I think, something safe and reliable. And so we split the money between Texaco and Southern Company. And of course, I didn't know anything about either of those companies when I bought them. Looking back on it, I have to hand it to that broker. Those were perfect choices given the parameters I'd outlined for them. Unfortunately, I was very inexperienced as to what to do. What I should have done is just held them forever. Every morning in the daily paper, the stock prices would be reported. And I'd, of course, immediately look at how mine were doing. And the moment they were up a little bit, I sold them. So made a lot of learning mistakes. What did you do with the money after you sold those? 
You know, I don't remember, but I, I do remember that I was a stock picker for a long time. So when I bought those, it would have been in 75, 76 in that range. And I didn't embrace index funds until maybe 2000. I actually achieved financial independence picking stocks and uh, picking in actively managed mutual funds that were run by stock pickers. So the point is not that picking stocks and picking actively managed funds doesn't work. It does work. The reason I'm such a big fan and totally invested in index funds now is that simply works better. And it works better with a lot less effort, but I'm a slow learner. This is a perfect segue into diving into your book, The Simple Path to Wealth, which I read a few years ago. And for me, there were three big takeaways. Save half your paycheck, avoid debt, and embrace yeah. index funds. Yep. And for those listeners who might think of the idea of saving half their paycheck as something that's a bit daunting, do you have any literal tips on making that happen? For example, direct deposit to some other account so you don't see half your paycheck and don't have the temptation to spend it? Or what's your recommendation for how to make that more doable? So that's a great question. I, I would agree with the suggestion you made, which is really talking about the mechanics of it. So if you can set up an automatic system where money is automatically taken from your checking account that your paycheck goes into and invested into an index fund, that's a great way to do it. But even more importantly than that, it seems to me, is you have to adjust your mental thinking about this. And I think there are a couple ways to do it. Now, I had an advantage in the moment I began my first professional job. That paid me $10,000 a year. I just decided a little bit randomly, quite honestly, that I was going to save half of that. So I was going to live on $5,000 and I was going to invest $5,000. And that's what I did. And then as my income increased, the half that I was investing increased, but so did the half that I was living on. So I let my lifestyle expand within those parameters, but I never had to back out of an expensive lifestyle that I'd put together before I wanted to invest. And that's challenging. And so anybody who's listening, who's in that position has some work cut out for them. But the other mental adjustment I would suggest people make is they tend to think, okay, here's this money that I'm going to spend and enjoy. And here's this money that I have to put away and save. And boy, that feels like deprivation. Well, it never felt like deprivation to me because from my point of view, I was always spending that money. I like to say I've spent every dime that's ever come into my hands. The difference is I spent half those dimes buying the most important thing that I think money can buy, and that's my freedom. That's my freedom to choose how to spend my time. That's my freedom to choose what job to work at and for how long and for whom. And to me, there was nothing that I would prefer to spend my money on than my freedom. And of course, the way you buy your freedom is through investments. And in the case of the Simple Path, specifically low-cost, broad-based index funds. I definitely want to come back to index funds in a second. But before that, the avoiding debt part, is purchasing a car or a home exempt from that? Or is your philosophy avoid any kind of debt? Certainly it applies to cars. I have never had a car payment. And I've said that in public forums and I've had people absolutely not believe it. They seem to think that I'm lying, but it is the truth. Now, how did I do that? My father actually taught me that. He also never had a car payment and he bought new cars every five years and he paid cash for them. And then the moment he bought that new car, he started saving for the next new car. 
So instead of making a payment to the bank and paying interest to the bank, he would make a payment to his savings account and the bank would pay him interest. Obviously, the better approach. The challenge of that approach is, well, how do you get that first car? How do you get that first savings? And you do it by buying really junky old cheap cars and enduring those while you save the money to buy better cars. And that's simply what I did. Buying houses, of course, is a little trickier because it's a much, much bigger expense. So I have owned houses over the years. And for the most part, I've had mortgages on them. I say that because we have this little vacation cottage on the lake that we paid cash for, but we're in a stage of life where I can afford to do that. So mortgages are something that you're probably going to have to do if you want to own a house. Now, I would also say, think long and hard before you decide to buy that house, because in many cases, people don't actually need houses and they're not great investments. And the other caution I'd say is if you decide you want a house, and as I mentioned, for most of my adult life, I have owned them, Think of it as a lifestyle indulgence and buy not the most expensive house the bank and the realtor tells you you can possibly afford, buy the least expensive house that meets your needs. So I think the, the first two pieces of advice from the simple path to wealth of saving half your paycheck and avoiding debt will be clear to most listeners, perhaps a little daunting to some, but just to ensure we're all on the same page with the third piece of advice of embracing index funds, which you've mentioned a couple of times already, just to get everyone on the same page, what is an index fund? So just real quickly, before we go into that, let me address that daunting part of it, because you're right. And I've had people turn away from the simple path because they say saving 50% of my income is just not realistic. And this is nonsense and can't possibly be done. Well, I can guarantee you that almost anybody listening and who's currently saying that to themselves, there are other people out there who are making less than you do and who are saving more than 50%. And for every person who I've heard say, that's just not possible. Nobody can save 50% of their income. I've heard from probably two or three times as many people saying, JL, 50%, that's nonsense. That takes way too long if you save only 50%. I'm saving 60, 70, 80%. So it all depends on how you want to spend your money. I always want to spend my money first on my freedom, Those people saving even more, obviously, are even more intent on buying that. And if you think you can't save 50% of your income to buy your freedom, what you're really saying is that you prefer to spend your money on things other than your freedom. And by the way, that's fine. It's your money. You can spend it on whatever you want to spend it on. Just understand that's the choice you're making and make sure that's the choice you really want to make. Now, to index funds, I think you were asking me, what are they? (laughs) Let's start with an actively managed fund, because that also talks about investing in individual stocks. An investment company will create a fund that pools money from investors, and they will hire professional stock pickers, whose job it is to try to figure out which stocks are going to do better and which stocks are going to do less well, and to avoid the ones doing less well and invest only in the ones doing better. The idea that they will outperform the market overall. Turns out that's extraordinarily difficult to do. The research indicates that very few people do it. In fact, if you go out far enough in terms of time, it gets to 1% or less, statistically zero people who can actually outperform the market over time. But that's what they try to do. One of the things that makes it so hard is, of course, those active managers cost money. 
And that money is paid by you, the investor, in your expense ratio on your fund and some other fees sometimes that funds blend into it. An index fund, on the other hand, simply says, you know what? The research indicates that it's almost impossible to consistently outperform the market. So we will just buy the entire market. And when we buy the entire market, we don't have to pay expensive traders and stock pickers to try to figure out what's going to do better because we don't care. We know we can't do that. We're going to buy everything. And that's what a broad-based stock index fund is. The one I like best of all is VTSAX, which is Vanguard's total stock market index fund. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It buys literally every publicly traded company in the United States of America, about 36 or 3,700 companies at any given point. So a lot of diversity in one fund. Now, some of those companies are going to do poorly. Some of them may even do poorly enough that they fall off the index. The most you can lose with a company that does poorly is 100% of your money. That sounds pretty awful. Until you realize that some of those companies are going to do well, and they might gain 20, 30, 40, even 100%, and then some are going to do even better and gain 150, 200, 300, 1,000, 10,000 percent. Unlike going the downside that's limited to 100%, the upside is unlimited for the companies that do well. And that process of the poorly performing companies slowly drifting away, and new companies are always added as new companies are started and eventually grow to the point where they go public. So there's always new blood. And then you benefit from the companies that do well. I call that process self-cleansing. So the index is self-cleansing and it's rigged in your favor because it's always building the companies that are performing and it's always slowly drifting away from the companies that are not. These index funds, not all index funds are this way, but Broad-based index funds like VTSAX are something called cap-weighted. And that means that the bigger the company is, the greater a percentage of it you own in the portfolio. Now, some people criticize index funds for that. And they will point out correctly, for instance, that right now, if you look at the top 10 funds that dominate the S&P 500 or the total stock market index fund, it's mostly technology. Why is that the case? Well, technology is the sector of our economy that's really rocking and rolling. now, And the critics say, you're just buying a technology fund. But they forget that self-cleansing part because technology was not always at the top. I can remember a time when the top stocks were financials, another time when they were all energy companies. And you know what? When those were the top performers in my index fund, I own those top performers. And then as their performance kind of dropped down relative to financials, then I own the financials. And when those kind of drop down and we're taken over by technology, and by the way, I might not have this order correct, but the concept is the same, then I own those technology companies that were making their way up. So I'm always owning the best performing companies because it's always self-cleansing. And that's one of the things that makes index investing so powerful. That the low cost, by the way. The, the low cost. Mm-hmm. Jack Bogle, who created the Next Funds, had a great line. He said, performance comes and goes, but costs are forever. <laughs> so because we don't have active managers in our index fund, we don't have high costs. 
JL, how old were you when you were embracing all three of those things, saving half your paycheck, avoiding debt, and embracing index funds? Well, I've always avoided debt. Other than mortgages, I've never carried any debt at all. I've always saved half my income. When I was a kid, I was probably saving 90% of it, but I didn't have the expenses you have as an adult as a kid, at least until I went to college. And then I was spending all of my savings and all of my income because I put myself through college. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, index funds first came on the scene in 1975. Ironically enough, the first year that I started investing, but I wasn't aware of them for a decade to around 1985. And even then, it seemed so counterintuitive for a stock picker like me. And this is, by the way, the argument I hear from stock pickers even today. It's my own voice in my head. I hear these arguments because I used to make them all. It just seemed so counterintuitive that if I just avoided the bad companies, I'd outperform them. Or if I just focused on the companies that were doing great, I'd outperform the market. It, it just seems so easy to outperform the market, but the research tells us it's not. And when you pick stocks for a while, you begin to realize that those dogs that you were avoiding, sometimes they're the exciting turnaround story that makes their investors a ton of money. And those high flyers that seem to be doing no wrong are suddenly Enron and they collapse. So it's much more difficult than it appears on the surface. So anyway, it took me a long time to accept the advantages that indexing offered. And I want to say that probably around 2000 was when I finally saw the light, so to speak, at my road to Damascus moment. So as of now, you don't own any individual stocks? Just index funds. I owned some individual stocks under the 2000s because I have the disease, as I like to say. There's few things more thrilling in life than finding a stock, evaluating it, investing in it, and being right and seeing it go up. That's very intoxicating. But I think the last individual stock I owned, I probably got rid of in 2014. What company was that last stock that you owned? I honestly don't even remember. Your book, The Simple Path to Wealth, has sold over 300,000 copies, and it's yeah. selling better today than ever before. To what do you attribute that? It has to be word of mouth because I don't do any promoting on it. I self-published it, so there's no publisher out there doing marketing and promotion of it. Nobody is more surprised than I am that it's had the success that it's had, especially that every year so far, at least, it's sold better than the year before. But yeah, I think it's simply word of mouth. I do interviews like this one, and that probably expands the number of people who know about it. But I also get feedback from people who read it, who say things to me, and this is pretty common. I read your book. I loved it. I just bought it for all my children, or I bought it for my team at work. All the people report to me. And so it's that kind of exponential growth. I'm, I'm waiting for Oprah to discover it and, <laughs> and then Katie bar the doors. <laughs> Even though you're known worldwide now for your investing philosophy, your career until 2011 was in publishing. When you explain to someone outside the publishing world the gist of what you spent your career doing, how do you explain it? In publishing, I was involved in business-to-business -business magazines, otherwise known as trade magazines. So the last magazine, for instance, was called Contracting Business, and it was a magazine for heating, piping, air conditioning technicians and companies, what they call HVAC. 
that magazine had a circulation of people in that business and there were advertisers who wanted to present their message to those people and that's how the magazine earned its money. I came up on the sales side, so I was selling what we called advertising space, which was advertising advertisers buying space in the magazine and then later, of course, buying space on the websites to advertise their products. And then when I was 29, I became publisher of the magazine I was working on at that time, which was a magazine called Material engineering, which talked about, as the title suggests, engineered materials in the manufacture of all kinds of products, so plastics and metals and composites. And so one of the cool things about that business is every magazine was a window into a unique industry. The first magazine I worked for was called Florist Review. So I got to see the horticultural industry and then the engineered materials industry and then the automotive jobbing industry. And so it was fun that, uh, to get a window in all these different industries but still be working in, in the magazine publishing business. Were any of your publishing colleagues also excited about investing or was this a topic you opted to avoid bringing up at the water cooler chats at work? <laughs> wasn't something that I avoided, but no, nobody was particularly interested in it. So it was not a subject that came up. You reached financial independence in 1989, but you kept working in publishing until 2011. What made you continue when you no longer needed the paycheck? So it's funny, as, as I was starting to invest early on in the 1970s, I read a book called Noble House, a novel by James Clavell. And in that novel, there's a woman whose stated objective is to have FU money. And I'd never heard that concept before or that term before, but it immediately crystallized what I had been working for and what I wanted to have. And so now I had a name for what I was doing because there was nobody in my world who was walking the path I was walking. Nobody who understood it, nobody I could talk to about it. And of course, there was no internet. There was none of the, the ways to reach the kind of community that we can reach now. That term really gave me something to focus on. But I still had no concept of a finish line. I had no concept of, oh, wow, there's a mathematical formula that could tell me how much money I needed to never have to work again. And then I could be something called financially independent. In fact, I didn't hear that until after I started the blog in 2011. What I knew is that with FU money, I could step away from any job I wanted to, whenever I wanted to, and for as long as I wanted. And in 1989, I did exactly that. Now, I had no idea I was financially independent, but I knew I had some FU money. That was the longest time that I was out of a regular job, five years. And about three years into that, about 1992, around when my daughter was born, I was doing, and again, remember, I was still tracking all this stuff by hand. And at the end of every year, I look at the investments and see how they'd done. And I noticed something remarkable, and that was that I hadn't been working for three years at that point. We hadn't changed our lifestyle at all. Now, we had a fairly modest lifestyle because, again, I was building my FU money. But I noticed that, wow, I have more money at the end of this year than I had at the beginning after paying all my bills. And then I noticed, gee, that was true last year, and it was true the year before. And I knew something, Kristen, remarkable had happened, but I didn't have any frame of reference for it. It just didn't occur to me that I become financially independent, that I never had to work again. And the other thing, and maybe this is the reason that 
it didn't occur to me is I liked working. I didn't like having to do it all the time. I liked being able to step away for sabbaticals like the one I was in the middle of. But 1995, I was offered another publishing job and I happily went back to work. I frequently think about this, by the way, and I think, what if I had known about financial independence? What if I had known about the 4% rule? What if I had known that I had enough money that I didn't have to work again? Would, would I have done something differently? And I don't know. I'm not sure. I want to return to your mini sabbaticals in just a second. But first, some people might not know what the 4% rule is. Would you mind explaining that briefly? Sure. The 4% rule basically says that if you have a chunk of money invested and you're invested in at least 50% stocks and bonds, and by the way, in low cost index funds, you can pull 4% of that chunk of money every year and have a very high likelihood of it lasting for at least 30 years, because 30 years was the time period that the studies that this concept came from. That's what they looked at. When I say high likelihood, 96% of the time, withdrawing 4% every year, adjusting every year for inflation, by the way, your money lasted for at least 30 years. When you look at the actual charts, most often your money grew to extraordinary size, even while you were pulling that 4%. So another way to look at that, you can take whatever amount of money you need to spend each year and you multiply that by 25 and that will give you the amount of money you need to have invested in order to pull 4%. So let's look at an example. Let's suppose that you say, I need $40,000 a year to live on, multiply 40 by 25 and you get a million dollars. So you need invested in at least 50% stock and 50% bonds because you need the growth engine of stocks. And even better, if you have a little higher percentage of stocks, now, if you have a million dollars, you are financially independent because that will throw off the 40,000 you need. On the other hand, if you're sitting on a million and a half dollars and you say, how much will that support? You take 4% of that and that's $50,000. And you say, if you can live on 50,000 a year, you're financially independent. So being financially independent is not just how much money you have, but it's also how much money you spent. And it's that ratio of those two things that determine it. I remember lunch with a friend of mine by the name of Ken back in the 90s. He'd just gotten his annual bonus in the financial business of $800,000. And what we discussed at lunch is how you can't live on $800,000 a year. And listening to Ken go through his expenses, the lifestyle he's constructed, as ludicrous as that might sound to most of our listeners, including me, mathematically, it was true. Ken was spending more than $800,000 a year. So Ken will never be financially independent unless he changes how he spends his money. On the other hand, I've known people who never made more than $40,000 a year who are financially independent. So it's not how much you make. Certainly the more you make, the easier it can become provided you are investing a large portion of that and you're controlling your spending. So I know you and your wife took a number of sabbaticals or mini sabbaticals after you had reached financial independence. What were some of those experiences like? Were you traveling during that time or were you at home? How were you spending those periods of, of time? So actually we did it before we were financially independent because remember, I didn't have any idea of being financially independent. I just knew I had this growing pile of what I call that few money. It never occurred to me that I would never go back to work again, but it occurred to me that I didn't have to work all the time and I could take time off. The least amount of time we ever took off, I think, was three months. And as I mentioned earlier, the longest period of time was five years. And that was probably a little longer than I would have preferred. It took a while for a new job offer to come rolling down the path my way. 
Most of the time we traveled. The five-year period of time, we spent some of the time at home and some of the time traveling. That's also the period of time when our daughter was born. And then Jane also, <laughs> when our daughter was born, she quit her job and became a full-time stay-at-home mom. So now we had no income at all. and It worked. You've mentioned in the past that you would have reached financial independence earlier if you'd been investing in index funds earlier. Are you willing to share any of your worst stock picks over the years? <laughs> yeah, sure. So first of all, I not only would I have achieved it earlier, but I'd have much more today and it would have been a whole lot easier. And obviously I, I had more successes and failures picking stocks. But for a brief period of time in the middle of my publishing career, I worked for, for an investment research firm filled with people who lived and breathed this stuff. And that's what attracted me to it. And there was a guy by the name of Jimmy Cullen, one of the older guys in the firm. He'd been around for a long Long time and he did business in Arizona. And he came across a little company called Mariah International, developing technology to extract gold from cinder cone. So everybody forever, it seems, had known that there is gold in cinder cone, but it's in very small amounts and nobody had ever figured out how to extract it. So there's maybe in a ton of cinder cone, half an ounce to maybe two ounces of gold. But that's in a ton of other material and it's microscopic or close to microscopic. So anyway, Mariah was coming up with technology to solve that problem. And Jimmy got to know the people who were running it. He got to know the technology. He brought the idea back to the firm. We had several other of our highly experienced analysts and everything go down and check it out. It was pretty compelling story. And a lot of us got involved in it, including myself. There has probably never been a company more thoroughly vetted and researched. This is one of the things that makes stock picking so hard. I remember we used to have morning meetings, which is typical in that business. And the principal of the firm, and of course, you have to report if you're working for a firm like that to the SEC, you have to report every trade you do. Everybody working at the firm has to report it. So the principal of the firm knew everything that everybody in the firm was buying or selling. It was just the law. And one of the morning meetings that Tom sat down, he looked around, he said, anybody care to guess what the most widely held stock in this firm is? And of course, it was Moray International. I personally had 50 grand into it. And back in those days, that was real money. And I was looking at scenarios where if this worked modestly, that was 10, 15, $20 million potentially. Problem is that what worked in the lab didn't work in the field. <laughs> and that was the end of Mariah. I think I probably sold it for a nickel a share. So essentially losing 95 plus percent of the investment. So that was a bad one. <laughs> when you look back over your career, is there anything that you would do differently? When I look back on that in particular, and I really want to depress myself, I'll go to a calculator, plug in $50,000 in, it was 1989 when I was working for that firm, and see how that would have grown in VTSAX. I haven't done that recently, but it's well over a million dollars. So anyway, I'm sorry, what was the question? You still had me fixated on what the awful experience of Mariah. Any thoughts of what you might do differently knowing what you know now? for your career? Well, of course, the big one, even bigger than Mariah, is I wish that I had embraced indexing sooner. 
you can't regret what you didn't know about. So I don't regret that I didn't embrace it in 1975 because I didn't know about it. I don't even regret that I didn't embrace it immediately in 1985 because I think it's wise to spend time thinking about and vetting things before you embrace them. But that should not have taken 10, 15 years to do. And that's probably my single biggest regret. It's a mistake that's a whole lot more expensive than Mariah was. I don't know if it's a regret, but as I said a moment ago, I do wonder, had I been aware of this whole concept of financial independence that we're all aware of now, if I'd had access to the kind of information that people have now, if I'd had access to people that had walked that path successfully, frankly, as I have done at this point. If I had those kinds of role models back in the early 90s when I finally realized I was FI, if that would have altered the choices I made, I don't know that I can say I regret that because, again, I enjoyed my career. So it's not one of those soul-sucking jobs that was killing me. And if I ever found myself in a job like that because I, I had a few money, I'd just step away for a while. Today, you and your wife consider yourself nomads. And aside from the last 15 or so months of staying put in Wisconsin during the pandemic, otherwise your life is on the road. What does that look like? Right now, it's hard to see it so far in the distance. But the last couple of years before COVID, we spent a fair number of months in Asia. I want to say in 2017, 2018, our daughter was in the Peace Corps in the Philippines. So we visited her and then we wandered around the Philippines and Taiwan and Japan. And uh, we had a great time doing that. In 2019, we were most of the year in Europe. We were traveling southwest in the U.S. When COVID hit, we'd been out there for about six months. That would have been the fall of 2019 until the spring of 2020. And of course, then we were in Denver, which is where our daughter lives now. And we were at an Airbnb and we were visiting with her when COVID hit. So we just extended that. And then we have this little beach house in Wisconsin on Lake Michigan that we bought just figuring we'd use it a couple of months of the year and Airbnb at the rest of the time, which we did initially, but we never dreamed we'd need a place to hide out from COVID. And so when COVID hit, that's what we did. We came back here and we've been here since last May, so uh, a little bit over, over a year. And it's funny how life turns out in ways that you might not expect. And when we bought this place, I had misgivings. How often are we going to get to Wisconsin? But we love this particular stretch of beach, and it's a gorgeous place to be. It was a bargain, so we snapped it up, just thinking we'll keep it for a while and let it go. In fact, we were planning to sell it when COVID hit, but turns out we needed it. Good thing <laughs> so. you didn't sell it. It's a good thing we didn't sell it, yeah. And so now as COVID's lifting and we're going to spend the summer here because the summer is obviously the best time to be on the beach. And then come fall, assuming COVID really is in the rearview mirror and some awful new variant doesn't bring us back to ground zero, we'll head back out on the road and we'll probably go back out to the southwest pick up where we left off on that trip. And then we also start up our Chautauquas next year, which have been on hiatus due to COVID. And that'll take us back to Europe in 2022. And what's Chautauqua for those who might not be familiar? <laughs> COVID notwithstanding, every year since 2013, we take a small group of people from the FI community, small being 30. We find some really cool exotic place to go with some cool exotic venue, and we all go there for a week and we hang out. 
we have four speakers. I'm always one of the four speakers. So that's a downside for anybody coming. <laughs> but there are other three other usually great speakers and they each spend uh, a morning giving a talk and answering questions. And then attendees can choose one of the speakers for private one-on-one session. We keep the number attending low. So everybody really has a chance to get to know each other. Terrible business model, by the way, because it's not scalable. But I didn't start it as a business. It is a business and it is a for-profit, but I just started it because I wanted to have fun doing it. And so the last year, 2019, before COVID shut it down, we did two weeks back-to-back in the UK in the spring, and then we did two back-to-back in Portugal in the fall. And now we're just beginning planned for 2022, and we're thinking about where we're going to go, and we have some cool ideas in mind. So, JL, when you and your wife are on the road, is Airbnb your preferred lodging option? It depends on how long we're staying. If we're staying for more than a couple of weeks, yeah, but we frequently stay in hotels if it's up to a week, and it depends on what's available in the area. What does the negotiation process typically look like of how you and your wife decide on upcoming destinations? There's not too much negotiation. We're both pretty much willing to go anywhere at any time. Whatever idea comes up, we both go to Chautauqua. So for instance, in 2019, that's one of the reasons we were in Europe. Chautauqua was in, as I said, England, in the UK, in the Springs. We took the Queen Mary II over to England and we hung out for a couple of weeks. And then we did a couple of Chautauquas and hung out in England for a while longer. And then we went over to Europe and wandered around until the fall in Portugal. So that kind of defines where we are. That's one of the reasons I think we'll probably be back in Europe come 2022. And then with our daughter being out in Denver, that draws us out to the Southwest. And now she's telling us she's thinking of moving to Savannah, Georgia or Charleston, South Carolina. So that'll probably move some of our travels to the Southeast if she does that. So yeah, there's no real method to the madness. There's just madness. I love it. When we met several years ago, you were sleeping maybe three or four hours a night. And I know this has changed dramatically. Are you one of the few people who are actually sleeping better during the pandemic? My sleep has improved dramatically in the last few months. I want to say February, March. So for most of the pandemic, I was sleeping as poorly as I ever did. So I'm not sure there's a pandemic connection. But yeah, I'm sleeping much better today. And life is better with sleep than without it. I I can imagine. As you well know. What do you think contributed to this massive improvement in the last few months? I think it might have been you (laughs) who made the, in one of our conversations, who came up with the best hypothesis on this. And that is that I have always had a terrible sweet tooth. And so I have always eaten a lot of sweets every day. And of course, that's not particularly healthy to begin with. And back in February, I went cold turkey on the sweets. I gave it all up. And let me tell you, that's stuff I still go through withdrawal symptoms on that months later. But nevertheless, I haven't had any kind of sweets since then. And that does dovetail with when my sleep got better. And I think you were the one who pointed that out. I, of course, would tend to eat those sweets mostly after dinner. So mostly at night, shortly before bedtime. Wow. Congrats. That sounds like a huge battle of giving up sweets altogether, cold turkey. That's impressive. And uh, that's fantastic that you're sleeping so much better now. That's wonderful. I appreciate you pointing it out to me because I gave them up for overall health reasons, but also with the idea that, well, getting rid of all those calories, I'll lose a little bit of weight. I haven't lost an ounce, which is very discouraging, very frustrating. And the fact that until 
until I had that conversation with you, I thought, why am I doing this? Why am I going through all the misery of withdrawal for absolutely no benefit? But you pointed out that there might be a benefit and a pretty substantial one. So it wasn't the one that I was hoping for and expecting, but it's still welcome nonetheless. As we wrap up today, JL, do you have any book recommendations for listeners? I would recommend The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Uh, very well done. I don't agree with everything that he says, but that's not the measure of a good book. He's a good writer and he makes a good case for his ideas. I think it also is a book that fits very well with my own. So if anybody has read The Simple Path to Wealth, they would probably enjoy this book. And conversely, if anybody listening has read The Psychology of Money and enjoyed it, then they would probably enjoy The Simple Path to Wealth. I wrote the foreword to Quit Like a Millionaire, was written by a Chautauqua speaker, Christy Shen, and her husband, Bryce, good friends of mine. Christy has an extraordinarily compelling story, having been born into abject poverty and tyranny, for that matter, in communist China. And her parents came to Canada, and she's now a millionaire. She's a retired early millionaire. And it's an incredible story, especially for anybody who reads my book and says, well, gee, that's only for rich engineers. Read Christie's book and you realize that it's it's a path that's available to anybody. And then on, on a non-financial tact, if you will, probably my all-time favorite nonfiction book is Sapiens by Yuval Harari. If you're interested in how we evolved as human beings and why we're the extraordinarily strange and odd creatures and why we do crazy things we do, then Sapiens is a great overview of that tale of human evolution. It's interesting. That's a book that's gotten a lot of praise and justifiably in my mind. The one critical review I read of it said, there's nothing new in this book. All this guy's done is taken all the evolutionary theory and put it together in one book. And if you know anything about human evolution, you're not going to learn anything new in this book. And I thought, well, that's true. And I am a student of human evolution. So yeah, there was nothing new in this book. But to me, that's the brilliance of the book is that he was able to take all of this stuff and put it into one incredibly well-organized, well-written overview and with just remarkable insights. So yeah, even the, the critical review I read, I think, speaks to the strength of the book. We will certainly include those titles in the show notes for this episode, which are at northstarsleepschool.com forward slash podcast. JL, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Entirely my pleasure. Thank you again so much for, for the invitation. It's, it's an honor. And for listeners, if you enjoyed today's discussion, be sure to check out JL's blog at jlcollinsnh.com, as well as his book, The Simple Path to Wealth, and two earlier podcast episodes from other financial independence experts, Alan Donegan in episode 13, and Christian Bryce, who JL just mentioned, are in episode 26. So thanks everyone for tuning in, for subscribing to the podcast, and for sharing this episode with a friend. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website, at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.